Good morning, guys. So good to see you today. As John said, what a blessing it is that we have every Thursday to come and feast off Miss Kim's cooking and study God's Word together. A few of us filmed a video. You might have seen them filming Amen last, uh, I think, Thursday morning. They're showing a video this coming Sunday in Big Church um, showing uh, all the things that we get to do together every Thursday, and hopefully more men will come and take advantage of this great gift that we have studying God's Word together as brothers. Uh, go ahead and flip open your Bibles to chapter 26. The end of um, last week, we came to a conclusion of another great discourse we've seen in Gospels in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, that was the last discourse in Matthew's Gospel, the end of chapter 25. All of the, the teachings of Jesus have come to a conclusion. And now we're turning toward and going very fastly to the cross of Calvary. In fact, from here on out, all the events are going to flow one on top of another as we, as we gain steam going towards the cross. Chapter 26, what we'll be looking at uh, this morning, all the events that are taking place were the Thursday before Jesus' death. Chapter 27 are all the events that lead up to mid-afternoon on Friday before Jesus' death and the crucifixion. And of course, chapter 28, we jump over to the amazing reality of the resurrection of Christ. The point is, in these next three chapters, we are standing on holy ground. I love what Charles Spurgeon says, how he just sums up these three chapters. He says, here we come to the holy of holies of our Lord's life on earth. This is a mystery like that which Moses saw when the bush burned with fire and wasn't consumed. No man can rightly expound such a passage as this. It is a subject for prayerful, heartbroken meditation and hope. The point is, all the events that we've read about so far, in fact, really all the Old Testament, have been leading up to what we're going to read about in chapter 26, chapter 27, and chapter 28. So with that being said, let us go to God's Word and then pray for the Spirit's help as we study it together. Chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all of these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name is Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my head, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, uh, where will you have us prepare for to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. 
And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he gave them thanks, he said to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this morning. Uh, we're grateful uh, for the fellowship which you have created within this body of brothers, and we pray, Lord, that you'd send your spirit. As it's been said, it is your will, O God, to have the spirit of God use the word of God to make children of God like us more like the Son of God. And Father, we pray that by your spirit you would do just that, that we wouldn't merely be informed by your word, but truly transformed. Plant it deep in our hearts, O Lord, and let us see the fruit of it. May we walk in faith and hope. From this day forward, we love you, God. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. I have a painting in my office. It's uh, by a man named Holman Hunt, and it's called The Shadow of the Cross. Y'all may have, I'm not a big art guy myself. In fact, I just read about it in John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, and he has this introductory page uh, where he describes this painting, and it, it sounded interesting, so I got it for one Christmas a couple years ago. And if you've seen it, you know how arresting it is. It depicts a teenage Jesus stripped down to the waist who is sweaty and he's tired and he's taking a break from working in Joseph's wood shop. And so he's stretching and he's got his arm and he just kind of grabs a hold of the door frame, stretching his back. And as he does, the, sh- uh, the sun shines through and it casts his shadow on the back wall uh, into the shape of a cross. And the toolbar where all of his instruments are hanging looks like the horizontal bar to which his hands would eventually be nailed. If you've seen it, it's very arresting. My favorite part of the painting, though, is Mother Mary, who's in the foreground of the painting. She's bent over, hunched over an old chest, and she's rummaging over the gifts of the Magi. And as she's looking at these gifts that these, these men gave her son, probably just reminiscing about how special that moment was, she looks back and she beholds her son, And she sees the shadow of the cross. And she contemplates what that means, not only for her, but for the world. I love that painting for several reasons, many of which we find in our text today. In that painting, just like our text, the several characteristics of Jesus are highlighted. First off, the sovereignty of God. In that painting, just like in our text, the sovereignty of God is highlighted. The cross was always before Jesus ever since his birth. The cross was central to his purpose and to his mission. The cross was always before him. We see the sovereignty of God. We also see the worth of Jesus, right? Because those gifts of the Magi remind us of why they brought him. He is the king of kings, and he is worthy of all that we are and all that we have. It also reminds us of the love of Jesus, the very shadow of the cross, the extent of his loyalty and love for us, which is 
perfectly displayed in the cross of Calvary. I also think, too, this passage, just like Mary, it calls us to behold Jesus. For us to contemplate him and to consider him. Right? Because there's lots of folks today, just like there were back then, that knew of Jesus, that heard Jesus, that were even around Jesus and saw Jesus do amazing things, but they didn't really see Jesus. And because of that, they missed Jesus entirely. Right? What we must do is take up the posture of Mary to take the time to truly consider Christ. To be arrested by him, to to examine him. Because it's really only then, I think, that we'll appreciate our desperate need for Jesus and the hope that Jesus provides us. And we see that in Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, in these 29 verses we're going to be looking at, there's three separate scenes. And in each scene, Matthew highlights a characteristic of Jesus that we're called to consider and to contemplate. Not only for God's glory, but certainly for our good. Okay, so now the first scene which is primarily in verses 1 through 5. We're going to be looking at some other verses too. But in this first scene, Matthew highlights the sovereignty of God. And those five verses, those first five verses rather that we just read, are kind of like an introduction to everything that's about to take place, including all the horrible things. Verses 1 through 5 set us up for that. We're told that Passover is two days away. Jesus gets his disciples and sets them aside, and he says things are about to change. All the things that we've experienced up until this date, you know, for the past three years, the ministry that we've done together, the things that you have seen, the things that I've taught you, all of that is about to come to an end, brothers. And not only that, all the hostility that we've been seeing building for the past three years, that's about to come to a head. And I want to prepare you because my passion and all that entails is about to happen. And so as we read that, really what Matthew is trying to do is for you and I to be assured that Jesus is sovereign over absolutely everything that's about to happen because it's shocking. But he wants us to know that Jesus is sovereign over all of it. And there's a couple of ways that we see this. First off, Jesus predicts his own death. We read that in verse 2. Jesus says, in two days, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In two days. Does it get more plain than this? I'm going to be crucified is what Jesus says. Now, this is about the eighth time, rather implicitly or explicitly, that Matthew highlights the the divine foreknowledge of Jesus as he predicts to his disciples that he's going to die. Over and over again, he's telling his disciples, guys, this is going to happen. And each time it gets a little bit more explicit. Right now, he tells them that he's about to be crucified. And they knew exactly what crucifixion was and what that meant, right? At least from a temporal human perspective. And so just imagine really quick that you're a disciple. You love Jesus. You've been with him for three years. He means everything to you. You believe him to be the Messiah. You've seen him do amazing things. And over and over again, he tells you, guys, I'm going to die. That must have shocked them. But when he tells them, I'm going to be crucified, the horror they must have experienced. I mean, here they are just having fun. They're about to celebrate Passover, this great moment. Guys, I'm about to be crucified. What? It must have shocked them. So a question we need to ask is, why was Jesus so adamant to tell these guys that, hey, I'm going to die, and this is how I'm going to die? Over and over again, why was Jesus so adamant predicting his death for them and for us? I think there's a few reasons. First off, so that they would know 
even though that they're about to witness the most horrific miscarriage of justice in the history of mankind, even though they're about to experience that, Jesus wanted them to know and us to know it's not an accident. All right, this didn't come out of the blue. This wasn't this big hurdle that was going to stop God's plan. This was part of the plan. And we know this from Revelation, right? After the fact, where Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world, meaning that this was always a part of God's plan. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of his gospel promises, including that first gospel promise we read in our last study in Genesis, Genesis 3.15, when the whole world goes to pot after the fall, but God in his grace promises a redeemer. He promises the seed of the woman. And what is the seed of the woman going to do? He's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, and that serpent's going to strike his heel. Jesus is saying, I am that seed. This has been in the works since the beginning. The cross was always before Jesus. Read John Stott's The Cross of Christ. It's an excellent book. But in that first chapter, he just has this this quip that's really haunting. He says that Jesus, the Son of God, was born to die. And we know that to be true, but to phrase it like that, the Son of God was born. The meaning of his birth, Christmas, was his death. It was always before him. And Jesus wanted his disciples and us to know that this was not an accident. This was, this was part of the plan. Secondly, he predicts his own death repeatedly like this so that might know the meaning of his death. And he tells them explicitly the meaning of his death in verses 26 through 29, which we'll get to in just a moment. But he wants them to know, like, guys, I'm going to die, but this isn't purposeless. This is the most significant thing that has happened in the history of mankind, my death. I'm about to tell you about it why I'm doing this. But ultimately, for our sakes this morning, I think the reason that he predicts his death over and over again is so that we might know, as horrific as the cross is, Jesus willingly embraced it for our sakes. So it wasn't like the cross just happened and Jesus had to think on his feet, okay, I'm going to do this. No, no, no. This was, this was before him since the beginning. And he knew how terrible it was. Just think about how terrible the cross is, the pain of it. The whippings, the nails through his feet and through his hands, the thorns around his head, the humiliation of it. Stark naked on the cross so everybody could see him being humiliated. And also the spiritual agony. Here we have the perfect spotless son of God with all of the sins and the shame of humanity poured upon him. Cut off from the land of the living, cut off from his father whom he has enjoyed intimacy for all of eternity. How miserable that is. And furthermore, he also knew how fickle his people are. Jesus knew that his disciples were about to abandon him. He knows that we often would abandon him when we choose sin over him. But nevertheless, Jesus willingly walked towards the cross and embraced it for our sakes. And he wants us to know that. That the horror of the cross, the horror of this tragedy, this miscarriage of justice, Jesus walked towards for you. And for me, it's amazing. This is holy ground, brothers. So we see his sovereignty in his prediction of his own death, but we also see his sovereignty in the fact that God is clearly sovereign over the plans of men. And then we see this all over the pages of verses 1 through 29, but particularly in verse 2 and in 5, there's this beautiful juxtaposition between verse 2 and verse 5 that highlight the fact that God is sovereign over even the evil plans of men. In verse 2, we see that Jesus predicts his own death. We see this eternal plan of God. 
Scroll down to verse 5. In verse 5, what do we see? We see these evil men actually planning to crucify the Son of God, right? So here is Jesus predicting his own death, scene cut like in a movie, and we see these evil men actually doing it. All right, now that's, that's interesting to me. Because these evil plans from Caiaphas and these other guys, this is a direct allusion to Psalm 31.13. I think that's what I wrote in your notes. 31.13, which is a lament of a righteous sufferer when evil men plot against him. So Jesus has taken up this role as the righteous sufferer. Evil men are plotting against him, right? However, even though these plans are evil and these men are culpably responsible for what they're doing, Those who have the eyes of faith know that this story is unfolding just as God planned. The point is, is that these men were not in control. Jesus is. Just as he tells us in John chapter 10, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord, is what Jesus tells us in the gospel of John. What Matthew is highlighting for us is that Jesus is in control over all these things that are about to happen to him. God is pulling off essentially a cosmic, sovereign, divine jujitsu move. In jujitsu, you know, the, the, the guy uses the momentum of their enemy against themselves in order to defeat their enemy. That's what Jesus is doing. He's taking up the evil intentions of men and using them against themselves in order to defeat evil. This is a direct fulfillment of Genesis chapter 50, where the lesser Joseph says, your intentions were for evil, but God's intentions are for good. Jesus, the greater Joseph, is showing us that in real time. He's sovereign over this. Now, just see how starkly the plan of God and the plan of these evil men is contrasted. Okay, so here we have Caiaphas and these other guys guys planning to kill Jesus. But then they say to themselves, we probably should wait. Right, let's just wait till after the festival, wait till after Passover. There's so many people in town. Jesus is still popular. If we arrest him, people are going to revolt, right? So we don't want that to happen. That's scary. So let's just, let's, let's arrest him in secret. When everybody else has gone back to their hometowns, we're going to arrest him in secret so no one's going to know about it. We'll kill him that way. But God says no. God says, I have a different idea. Because in his wise providence, he wants the Passover meal to coincide with the death of his son to communicate something very significant, which we're going to get to in just a moment. But here are these evil men that said, no, 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 this plan to kill Jesus isn't going to work. Jesus says, yes, it's going to work because it's in, because it's in my father's will. Jesus is in control of even the evil plot of these men. Now, there's a theological issue here, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Even though Jesus uh, is sovereign over all of these things, these people are still morally responsible for the actions they did. I mean, God is clearly orchestrating all these events. Jesus even knew the intentions of Judas's heart, as we see in verses 17 through 25. But nevertheless, these men are still responsible for the actions they took. So you have divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's a mystery to us. It really is. But the Bible holds both of those things in tandem without embarrassment. And I think we got to as well. Sometimes the Bible does that even in the same verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Um, Peter's preaching at Pentecost, and he's telling the crowds all that happened this day. And he's preaching primarily to a Jewish audience. And Peter says, Jesus was delivered up according to the plan and foreknowledge of God, yet you crucified and killed him. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. But the point is, Jesus is in control of all of it. He prepared it, he ordered it, he walked towards it, and he embraced it for our sakes.
And before we move on, I just want us to think about this too. If God was sovereign over all this that happened to his son, even those worst moments, those cruel moments, those evil moments, if he is sovereign over that, brothers, you can rest assured that he is sovereign over your darkest moments too. All of it. Sometimes we tend to think, I know God's good, but this, what happened, is awful. Clearly, God has nothing. Don't think that. God's in charge of all of it. He's got you in his hands just like he had his son in his hands. And that's good news, right? Because as Paul tells us, as those who love God and are called according to his purpose, all things work out for good. All things, not just good things, all things, including the worst of things, work out for his people. So the point is, if if God can work out the tragedy of the cross for the good of his people, brothers, he can work out every bad thing in your life too. And that's good news. And as Paul says, if he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us, will he not also graciously give us all things? Holy ground, right? So Matthew is showing us, he's telling us, contemplate the fact that God is sovereign and seek to understand what that means for the world and for you. Now in the second scene, primarily verses 6 through 16, Matthew highlights another characteristic of Jesus. He highlights uh, the worth, the value of Jesus. Sandwiched between two stories of betrayal, you have the Sanhedrin court that's planning to, to kill Jesus And then verses 14 through 16, you have Judas's betrayal. You have a story sandwiched right in the middle, and it's the story of uh, of the anointment at Bethany. Now, if you remember, if you've noticed, in John's gospel, he actually places this chronologically. All right, so according to John, this actually happened just before Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. But Matthew and Mark, they place it here, and they do it for thematic purposes. They want to highlight something very important, the value of Jesus. And to set in the contrast between the acts of Mary, who we're about to talk about, and the act of Judas, the value of Jesus, the worth of Jesus, is put on a pedestal. All right? So a couple of things. Let's first off think about the act of Mary's devotion. What do we need to know about this? First off, this Mary, according to John, is the same Mary that's sister to Martha and Lazarus. Okay, you remember that Mary. That's the Mary who who sat at the feet of Jesus and just marveled at Jesus, who beheld Jesus like Mary, the mother of Jesus in that painting I was referring to earlier. She just sat at the feet of Jesus, and her sister Martha was mildly rebuked by Jesus because she was too busy cooking in the kitchen. He says, Martha, come in here, like, be like Mary, just sit at my feet, listen to me, be with me, be in my presence. It's that Mary, the same Mary who witnessed Jesus raise her dead brother from the grave, Lazarus. It's that Mary. So that's who we're talking about here. Another thing, Simon the leper we're to understand from the culture of the day and really the surrounding context that this man was no longer a leper. He was just distinguished as the leper because there's lots of people named Simon. So this is someone that Jesus had previously healed. Okay, so imagine you're Simon. You have a death sentence on your head because it's not like they had an ointment for leprosy back then, okay? He was going to die, and he was ostracized from society. No one wanted to touch him or come around him. Jesus, though, in his mercy and his grace, heals him, restores him back to society, and now you get to throw a dinner party for that Jesus. That's who Simon is. Amazing. Now, it's in this context that Mary is compelled to make an extravagant act of devotion. 
She takes this alabaster flask, which was a family heirloom. She breaks it and dumps this very expensive, very sweet-smelling ointment on Jesus' head to anoint him. It's very expensive. Most scholars say it's about 300 denarii, which would have been about a year's worth of salary. So whatever you made last year, imagine spending that in five seconds. That's what she did. And because of that, two things happened. The disciples rebuked her, and Jesus praised her. (laughs) He couldn't be more different. The disciples saw this happen. They rebuked her, but Jesus praised her. Now, why are the disciples angry? Well, Matthew tells us. They thought this was too of extravagant of a gift. He said, Mary, what are you, crazy? (laughs) We're supposed to be serving the poor. Jesus has taught us about this. That could have fed like hundreds of families. This is ridiculous. Why in the world would you have done that? That was their reaction to what Mary did. Now, I know a lot of times when preachers get up here, we're studying the Bible, we give the disciples a hard time for being morons, you know? Like, (laughs) these are the bad examples. But I got to tell you, I was convicted by that. Because these guys were concerned for the poor. And we should be concerned for the poor. Jesus affirms the fact that we ought to be concerned for the poor, even though they'll always be with us in this life. He says to be concerned for the poor as the disciples were. They're much more concerned for the poor than I am, and I'm willing to bet most of us are. Right? So that's convicting. But as noble as their concern for the poor was, it was not anchored in an appropriate apprehension of who Jesus is and Jesus' love for them. Because if it was, they would have deduced, just like Mary, that Jesus is worthy of it. Friends, did, G- did Mary know everything there was to know about Jesus up until this point? Did she know what her actions really meant? Right? Or did she just do better than she knew? I don't know. But it's clear that she knew enough. Right? Because she had a deeper understanding of who Jesus was and what he had come to do, more so than the disciples did. Because, first off, she knew that he was coming to die. She knew that was his mission because she anointed him. That was burial rites, as Jesus says. So she understood that Jesus was going to die. Furthermore, it's clear that she knew why Jesus was going to die. Jesus was going to lay down his life as a supreme act of love for his friends, including her, someone who knew that she was unworthy of that love. Right? Because she knew Jesus. She knew him and believed him to be the Messiah. She knew that she, he was the anointed one by God. He, he, she, she, she knows in her mind that God in his mercy and his grace has drawn near to unworthy people like her in Jesus. She saw Jesus do miraculous things, heal people. She saw Jesus raise her brother from the dead, things that only the Messiah could do. And so she rightly concluded that this man Jesus is worthy of all that she is and all that she has. And so she worshiped him appropriately. Christ blessed her for it, right? Because doesn't Jesus tell us that the Father's seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth? That's what she did that day, and he blessed her for it. So that's her great act of devotion. But now let's think about Judas's act of portrayal. Judas was mad too, but not like the other disciples. D.A. Carson says in his commentary, in Judas's view, Jesus was acting less and less regal, less like the Messiah that Judas wanted, and more like a defeatist on his way to death. Judas was a zealot, and in his mind, Jesus was no longer the horse that he wanted to tie his rope to to overthrow Rome. 
So what that means then is that Judas did not betray Jesus simply for money, which is what we usually think. And Judas was a greedy person. But if it was only for money, he would have asked for a heck of a lot more than 30 denarii. Because the Old Testament tells us that's what someone owes another person if their ox accidentally gorges their slave. It was chicken feed. So he wasn't in it for the money. The real reason that Judas betrayed Jesus is because he was tired of Jesus. He had no time for a dead Savior. He didn't think he needed one. So he hawked him for next to nothing. How egregious is that? The Son of God sold for nothing more than an expensive meal. And so what's happening here? Matthew is at once showing us the infinite cost, the infinite worth of Jesus as the Son of God. But we're also being confronted with the question, have we valued Jesus rightly? Because here's here's the most convicting part of this whole thing. Judas proves to us it's entirely possible to be around Jesus, to at one time actually like Jesus, to even witness Jesus do miraculous things, to even talk fondly of Jesus to other people and not actually know Jesus and not value him appropriately, to miss him entirely. That ought to arrest all of us. He was a disciple. He saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. And this is what he did. But then you have Mary that shows us that Jesus is worth everything. We could waste our time, we could waste our money, we can waste our life on a myriad of different things in this world, but Mary is showing us we will never waste those things on Christ. He is worthy of all that we are and all that we have. And the difference, right, is Mary took the time to fall at the feet of Jesus and actually consider him, to actually examine who Jesus is and what he offers to behold his love, right? And that leads to our third point. Matthew in this third scene highlights the love of Jesus. As great as Mary's show of devotion was to Christ, it pales in comparison to the love and the loyalty that Jesus shows us. In verses 26 through 209, the day is Thursday. It's the 14th day of Nisan, all right? So Jesus and his disciples are getting together to have a celebration. They're about to celebrate Passover, the Passover meal. And it's in this meal that Jesus demonstrates in the most clearest way possible both the meaning of his death and the incalculable nature of his love for us. Okay, there's a couple of things. First off, in this meal, we see the centrality of Jesus' death, verse 19 and 26. We see the centrality of his death. Now, what is Passover? Uh, Passover was a meal that the Hebrews took the night before they were delivered from Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 12, God says that this meal would be a perpetual reminder for subsequent generations to remember this great act of grace that God did in delivering their ancestors from the hands of Pharaoh, from the land of slavery. So over and over again, they would would take this meal on a yearly basis. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's what his disciples are doing. They're celebrating that day, remembering all that God had done. Now, so Jesus was the presider of this meal. 
right? So the presider, they did a couple of things. First off, they prepared it. Uh, they got the party together. They're the ones who served the meal. But as they were serving the meal, they would also explain the story from Exodus. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing here. Now, normally, someone, as they would break the bread, this is usually what they would say, something of the sort, this bread is the affliction of our forefathers who ate in the wilderness. They suffered that we might be delivered here, take and eat. Right, so it's reminding them of the bread of affliction that their ancestors experienced in the desert, in the wilderness, that they experienced those things so that they might be delivered. But that night, Jesus changed the wording. He says, this is the bread of my affliction. And I'm about to deliver you from a greater bondage. Friends, those disciples would have been shocked to their core. For hundreds of years, there were certain words that people would say to remember God's grace. And Jesus changes it this night and says, this is the bread of my affliction. And I'm about to deliver you. Uh, Tim Keller, I love how he comments on this. He just kind of puts flesh to it. He says, Jesus is saying, for generations, brothers, we ate this supper to remember God's redemption, delivering us from Egypt. But tonight, I'm going to pull off a greater redemption. And this time, it's not deliverance from Pharaoh or political slavery. I'm going to deliver you from hell. I'm going to deliver you from sin and death itself. See, 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 Jesus is doing something remarkable here by saying that this bread is my body. He is showing his disciples and he's telling us that all of human history, all of redemptive history has been leading up to this moment. Even the original Passover meal was a shadow of tonight. He's saying that everything is leading up to this moment where the one who's of infinite worth would lay down his life for our sakes. Jesus is saying that this act of love that he's about to take up is the most important moment in human history, is central to all things. So first off, we see that. Secondly, we also see the purpose of his death in 27 and 28. A question his disciples must have asked is, why do you have to die, though? We love you, Jesus. We've been longing for you, and you're here. We've, been, we've had intimate fellowship for the past three years. Why do you have to die? Jesus answers that in the second statement at the Lord's table when he says, drink from this, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's why. Brothers, that statement is loaded. Every time your pastor says that at communion, think about what's being said. That word for, oh man, it's so deep. In the Greek, it's so much richer than our English word for. For in the Greek could be translated in behalf of or instead of you. So on behalf of many, instead of many, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is describing his death, the reason for his death, in substitutionary terms. Right here. So let's just think about in the Lord's, or rather the Passover meal, there were several elements. First off, there was the bread of affliction, which we talked about. There was the cup of wine. There was actually four cups of wine that represented the four covenant promises which God talks about in Exodus 6. And then there was the main course, the lamb. That was the big deal. I mean, that's what everybody came for, for the delicious roasted lamb, right? Now, what is the lamb? In Exodus, in the deliverance account in Exodus, God tells us that his final blow to Pharaoh that would ultimately lead to the deliverance of his people was the angel of death. 
He says the angel of death is going to come over the land and he's going to strike the firstborn dead of every family. And it's through this that I'm going to save you. So this is what you're going to do. On this night, before the angel of death comes, you're going to take a lamb, you're going to kill it, and you're going to eat it and enjoy it, but then you're going to take his blood and put it over your doorstep. And as you do, the angel of death will pass over you. First off, notice how non-discriminatory the angel of death and judgment was. God said judgment is coming to every single person in this land, not just the Egyptians, but to you too. All of you are deserving of death. But it's only those who trust in the blood of the lamb who will be delivered. Now go to the Lord's Supper. What's the one thing that's missing? They ate the bread. They drank the cup. Where's the final meal? Where's the lamb? It was missing. And you better believe that those disciples understood what Jesus was communicating. Jesus was communicating, I am the lamb. I am the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I'm going to willingly go this route to be slaughtered so that you wouldn't have to be. This is the blood of the covenant. This is how God is going to keep all of those promises when I pour out my blood, when I pour out my love and prove my commitment to you. This is what Jesus was communicating. That he was going to be cut off so that you and I could be brought in. So that he would die in order that you and I might have life. That is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. That's the meaning of his death. Holy ground. What love is this that the king of all creation would lay aside his crown to save our souls? And then, of course, you have the gift of the sacrament itself. The death of Jesus doesn't automatically do anything for anybody, any more so than sitting before a meal feeds you. You actually have to take that meal and take and eat it, right, to be hungry. I mean, you could starve to death sitting before a meal. You have to take and eat. And what Judas shows us is that it's entirely possible, again, to be before Jesus and not be saved by Jesus. Like Mary, we have to to apprehend who Jesus is and what he's offering us and throwing ourselves onto his mercy lap and believe on him in faith to rest in him. And what's really awesome about this is Paul tells us this this is covenant, this isn't fickle love. As we are united to Jesus by faith, there's not one thing in this world that could ever separate us from the love of God the Father. We are signed, sealed, and delivered in the Lord Jesus Christ. But isn't it true that oftentimes we don't believe that, even as believers? Isn't it true that oftentimes the gospel just sounds too good to be true? How could this, how could the one, how could this spotless lamb, the son of God, the king of creation, love me like this? We have a hard time believing it. So what does Jesus do? He gives us a perpetual reminder. Much like the Passover meal was, a perpetual reminder for God's people that God delivered them. Jesus gives us this supper, this sacrament. It's not the actual body and blood of Jesus as the Catholics believe, but nor is it a mere memorial like most evangelicals believe. This is a means of grace that Jesus gives us, that whenever we take it by faith, the Holy Spirit takes these ordinary elements, uses them as visible sermons that we can touch and taste and experience, to seal to our hearts and our minds that all of the gospel promises are true. Those main ones that Jesus refers to in verse 29, that not only are we resting on what Christ has done for us in the past, but we're looking forward with assured hope on that great day to come when Jesus returns, makes all things new, and gathers us up, brothers, at that marriage feast. And Jesus says that he's going to drink wine on that day. 
because it's going to be a great celebratory day. And so we look forward to that day in hope. Jesus' words ought to be enough, but he gives us this sacrament so that we might believe all the more deeply and grow in faith. Brothers, this is holy ground. Just think about all the things that we've learned in these 29 verses. Jesus is the king of creation, yet he willingly came to be judged by evil men. Jesus was sold as a slave, yet gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus died a sinner's death in order to save sinners like you and me. This is our God. And my prayer for each of us is that we would truly behold him and consider his sovereignty and consider his value, his infinite worth, and that we might consider his incalculable love that he has for us. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for my brothers in this room. All of us are so grateful for your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would use it to build us in faith, to make us more like your son, and to build us in hope for this day and the days ahead. We love you, O God, and it's in Christ we pray.